Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, episode 12. In this episode we're going to be looking at six stories. The first, animals sealed in stone. Secondly, the fairy boy of Leith. And thirdly, from the NewScientist.com website, did evolution come before life? And our fourth story shows that truth never stands in the way of a good story. From TheOnion.com, Dolphins Evolve Opposable Thumbs. Oh shit, says humanity. The Hubble finds unidentified object in space and scientists are puzzled. And finally, from the Unmuseum.org website, The Mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Our first story today comes from the paranormalabout.com website and it's entitled Animals Sealed in Stone Amazing cases of living frogs, toads and lizards found encased within solid rock and it was written by Stephen Wagner One of the greatest Warner Brother cartoons of all time is the one about the singing frog A construction worker demolishing an old building finds a time capsule in the cornerstone. When he opens it, out leaps a grinning green frog, which commences to dance and sing old show tunes. Hello my baby, hello my honey, hello my ragtime gal. The construction worker is amazed and quickly sees that this astonishing find will make his fortune. He quits his job and opens a theatre starring his talented amphibian. When the curtain rises on opening night, however... 
the frog just sits and croaks. The construction worker never questions how the frog was able to sing and dance. He doesn't even question how it managed to survive so long in an airtight time capsule without food or water. But then, this is just a cartoon, right? Nothing to do with reality. You think so? In fact, there are many documented cases of toads, frogs and other small animals inexplicably found encased within solid rock, alive. Granted, they do not sing or dance, but these amphibious enigmas are one of the most perplexing mysteries of geology. Here are some of those cases. In 1761, Ambrose Paré, physician to Henry III of France, related the following account to the annual register. Being at my seat near the village of Moudon, and overlooking a quarryman whom I had sent to break some very large and hard stones, in the middle of one we found a huge toad, full of life and without any visible aperture by which he could get there. The labourer told me it was not the first time he had met with a toad and the like creatures within huge blocks of stone. In 1865, the Hartlepool Free Press reported that excavators working on a block of magnesium limestone, taken from about 25 feet underground near Hartlepool, England, discovered a cavity within the stone that contained a live toad. The cavity was no larger than its body, and presented the appearance of being a cast of it. The toad's eyes shone with unusual brilliancy, and it was full of vivacity on its liberation. It appeared, when first discovered, desirous to perform the process of respiration, but evidently experienced some difficulty, and the only sign of success consisted of a barking noise, which it continues to make invariably at present on being touched. The toad is in the possession of Mr. S. Horner, the President of the Natural History Society, and continues in as a lively state as when found. On a minute examination of its mouth is found to be completely closed, and the barking noise it makes proceeds from its nostrils. The claws of its forefeet are turned inwards, and its hind ones are of extraordinary length, and unlike the present English toad. The toad, when first released, was of a pale colour and not readily distinguished from the stone, but shortly after its colour grew darker until it became a fine olive brown. Around the same time, an article in Scientific American related how a silver miner named Moses Gaines found a toad inside a two-foot diameter boulder, the article stated that the toad was three inches long and very plump and fat. Its eyes were about the size of a silver cent piece, being much larger than those of toads of the same size as we see every day. They tried to make him hop or jump by touching him with a stick, but he paid no attention. A later article in Scientific American said, Many well-authenticated stories of the finding of live toads in frogs in solid rock are on record. In 1821, Tillich's Philosophical magazine wrote how David Virtue, a stonemason, was working on a large chunk of rock that had come from about 22 feet below the surface when he found a lizard embedded in the stone. It was coiled up in a round cavity of its own form, being an exact impression of the animal. It was about an inch and a quarter long, 
of a brown-yellow colour and had a round head with bright sparkling projecting eyes. It was apparently dead, but after being about five minutes exposed to the air, it showed signs of life. It soon ran about with much celerity. During World War II, a British soldier was working with a team in the quarrying of stone for making roads and filling in bomb craters. They often used explosives to crack open the rock. After one such detonation, the soldier pried a stone slab away from the quarry face when he saw, in a pocket in the rock, a large toad and beside it a lizard at least nine inches long. Both these animals were alive and the amazing thing was that the cavity they were in was at least 20 feet away from the top of the quarry face. Live toads and frogs have also popped out from inside impossible tight and enclosed spaces, within trees that were being cut open. The French Academy of Sciences published an account in a 1719 edition of its memories of the felling of a large elm tree. In the exact centre of the trunk, about four feet above the root, was found a live toad, middle-sized but lean and filling up the whole vacant space. The Utenhage Times of South Africa in 1876 printed the experience of timbermen who were cutting a tree into planks, when deep inside of it a hole was found containing 68 small toads, each about the size of a grape. They were of a light brown, almost yellow colour, and perfectly healthy, hopping about and away as if nothing had happened. All about them was solid yellow wood, with nothing to indicate how they could have got there, how long they have been there, or how they could have lived without food, drink, or air. Otter still, it is not just natural stone and trees in which these impossibilities occur. When a castle wall was being demolished in September 1770, a live toad was plucked from the solid plaster. The wall had stood undisturbed for more than 40 years. Renowned biologist Julian Huxley received a letter from a gas fitter in Devonshire, England, who had broken up some concrete flooring to install some pipe extensions. My mate was at work with a sledgehammer when he dropped it suddenly and said, that looks like a frog's leg. We both bent down and there was the frog. The sledgehammer was set aside and I cut the rest of the block carefully. We released 23 perfectly formed but minute frogs, which all hopped away to the flower garden. In 1976, a Fort Worth, Texas construction crew was breaking up some concrete they had set just a year before. Within the broken concrete, a living green turtle was found in an air pocket that matched the shape of the creature's body. If it had somehow got in when the concrete was poured a year earlier, how did it survive over that time? Ironically, the poor turtle died a few days after its release. There are no easy explanations for these incredible anecdotes. Those who found the creatures nearly always state that there was no discernible way, no small hole, crack or fissure, by which they could have gotten into these pockets inside the rock. And the pockets are always about the exact same size of the animals within, some even bearing an impression of the animal, as if the rock had been cast around it. 
even if a fertilised egg of a toad or frog had somehow seeped into the rock cavity, what did it live on? What did it eat, drink and breathe to grow, in some cases to full size? Being unable to move inside the rock, how did its muscles develop so that it could hop away upon being released? Geologists tell us that the rock is formed over thousands of years. How old are these animals? The most incredible of such anecdotes was recorded in 1856 in France. Workmen labouring in a tunnel for a railway line were cutting through Jurassic limestone when a large creature stumbled out from inside it. It fluttered its wings, made a croaking noise and dropped dead. According to the workers, the creatures had a ten-foot wingspan, four legs joined by a membrane, black leathery skin, talons for feet and a toothed mouth. A local student of paleontology identified the animal as a pterodactyl. And from the www.mysteriousbritain.co.uk website comes an article by Andrew Tibbs. The Fairy Boy of Leith. The story of the fairy boy of Leith is relatively unknown today and doesn't appear to have been recently recounted since its last appearance in the 1970s Reader's Digest compendium Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. It tells of a boy living in the poor town of Leith, then adjacent to Edinburgh, who was famous because each week he would disappear into a hill where he was reputed to commune with the fair folk to dance, sing and feast. At least, that is what the Reader's Digest account states, as indeed do other more recent retellings of the story. However, revisiting the original source gives a very different impression. The story has been retold a number of times, possibly most famously in Sir Walter Scott's The Heart of Midlothian, but the original story can be traced back to a 17th century account in Richard Beauvais' Pandemonium, or The Devil's Cloister, 1684. As to be expected, there were differences in both accounts. What was not expected was the extent to which the fairy boy myth had been blown up over the years. All of the stories follow the same basic tale, that Captain George Burton whilst staying in Leith, came across a boy known locally as the Fairy Boy, who had been given the gift of second sight by the fairies. Every Thursday night, the boy would go to Calton Hill, then a remote place between Leith and Edinburgh, where he would enter the hill through huge gates, only visible to those with the fairy gift, and commune with the fairies. At these gatherings, the boy would play drums for the little folk who danced and feasted. One Thursday night, the captain and some acquaintances held the boy in conversation, hoping to avert his trip to the hill, but the boy gave them the slip, but was found and brought back to the house, 
whereupon he managed to slip away for a second time. There the story ends, with most accounts stating that the boy made off to Calton Hill to once again meet with the fair folk. But Beauvais' original account differs considerably. His book is a collection of stories from around the British Isles, with the fairy boy story being taken from a letter written to Beauvais by my worth friend, Captain George Burton, in his own hand. The letter is transcribed by Beauvais with his own conclusions on it. The letter tells of the experience of Captain Burton when he was based in Leith, with the events recounted occurring in 1648 or 1649 at the latest, some 15 years prior to the letter being written. Burton would regularly meet acquaintances at a house where they would drink wine. It was owned by a woman who was, in Burton's words, of good reputation, and it was her who told Burton of the fairy boy, a child who had the gift of second sight. The woman showed him the boy who was playing in the street. Burton guessed he was not more than 10 or 11 years old. At this point, we learn a bit about the character of Burton and see the differences between the original account and the more romantic later modern versions. Burton's letter states that he coerced the boy into the house with money and smooth words. Once inside and in the presence of diverse people, Burton demanded of the boy several astrological questions, which the boy then answered with great subtlety. Burton notes that the boy was more intelligent than he had expected for someone of his age. During this, the boy starts to drum his fingers on the table. Burton asks if the boy can beat a drum. The boy replies that he can drum as well as any man in Scotland, for every Thursday night I beat all points to a fort of people that used to meet under yonder hill, pointing to the great hill between Edinburgh and Leith. Burton pursues this line of inquiry by asking what company the boy has there, and he replies that there is a great company of men and women who are entertained with many types of music and feast on meat. He even goes on to say that on many times they are carried to France or Holland in a night and return again, enjoying the pleasures of those countries. Something more reminiscent of the stories from the witchcraft trials rather than of fairies. Burton then demanded to know how the boy got under the hill and was told that there were a great pair of gates, invisible to others, beyond which were rooms large enough to accommodate most of Scotland. Eventually Burton is told by the owner that no one could keep the boy from his Thursday night rendezvous, and so Burton promises the boy money to meet with him in the afternoon of the following Thursday. Burton goes on to state that he arrived at the rendezvous with a group of acquaintances to prevent the boy leaving. The boy answered many questions without wanting to leave until 11pm when he left the room without anyone noticing. When they do, Burton said that he hastened to the door and took hold of him and so returned him into the same room. Later in the evening, as Burton and his acquaintances were watching the boy, suddenly he was gone. Burton followed him out into the street where the boy made a noise, as if he had been set upon. As people gathered to see what the commotion was, Burton lost sight of the boy. 
Nothing is said about where the boy goes or what happens to him. All that is mentioned is that he disappears in a crowd after shouting that he is being attacked. And so ends Burton's letter. Beauvais adds his conclusions, stating how well-known and trustworthy Burton is, that he is a well-known figure in commerce circles in London, and there is no need for Beauvais to justify Burton's integrity. Beauvais concedes that he is not sure whether or not the boy had a corporeal or dream experience, and in concluding, he says that it's strange that the boy runs away, considering he was given the temptation of wine and money to keep him there, noting that wine and money are powerful temptations to lads of his age. There is little useful information in the original account which can indicate whether the story is true or not, with the exception of one point. Burton alleges that the boy went to Yonder Hill, interpreted as Colton Hill. These days Colton Hill is the centre of Edinburgh, but back then, before Leith became part of Edinburgh, it was between the two areas. Colton Hill sat dominant amongst the farmland and fields, and in the 18th century the boundaries between Leith and Edinburgh were shrinking, and a hundred years later the two were almost joined together. Colton Hill then, as now, has remained relatively undeveloped. So, did the boy enter into the hill? In the 1790s, Herman Lyon was a Jewish merchant living in Edinburgh at the end of the 18th century. Sometime after 1791, he started looking for a burial plot for himself and his wife. Being Jewish, he did not want to be buried in a Christian burial site and appealed to the town council to sell himself a piece of land at Colton Hill, and eventually they agreed. Two hundred years later, the site of Lyon's tomb was rediscovered. The Edinburgh Evening News told the story of two men in the observatory complex on top of the hill, Apparently they climbed through a rabbit hole and ended up in the tomb. Their description of Lyon's tomb implies that it may have originally been a cave or fissure. Perhaps this is the cave that the fairy boy used to dance in with the fair folk. Bob Holmes, writing for the www.newscientist.com website, has an article entitled Did Evolution Come Before Life? A rudimentary form of natural selection likely existed in the primordial soup even before life arose on Earth. If so, the complex ecosystem of prebiotic molecules may have made the eventual arrival of life much more probable. Most experts presume that life arose from complex molecules such as nucleic acids and proteins which were assembled from a mix of simpler units strung together with chemical bonds. 
To examine how this might occur, Ma Nowak and Hiyasu Otsuki, mathematical biologists at Harvard University, used simple equations to model the growth of such chains of building blocks. The model shows that because longer chains require more assembly reactions, they should be much less common than short chains. And if some assembly reactions run faster than others, then chains built from these fast assembling sequences of building blocks grow to be most abundant. This bare-bones equivalent of natural selection makes the prebiotic soup an interesting place, they say. It generates a rich evolutionary dynamic, or what I would want to call a pre-evolutionary dynamic, where you have diversity, you have information, you have complicated chemistry, says Nowak. Such a system full of novel interacting molecules would be the ideal milieu to generate a molecule with attributes that would favour the assembly of copies of itself. Nowak's prebiotic selection could then act to refine this ability by ensuring that better replicators become more common. At some point, Nowak's model predicts, the best replicator may get fast and accurate enough to dominate the population sucking up all the resources and driving all the other prebiotic sequences extinct. This is the threshold of life. Ultimately, life destroys pre-life, says Nowak. It eats away the scaffold that has built it. In showing that selection actually precedes the origin of life and helps to shape it, Nowak helps bridge the gap between non-living and living systems. In a sense, he says... The prebiotic soup is constantly testing possible replicators, making it much more probable that one might eventually reach the threshold of life. Noack's model helps clarify a murky area of research on prebiotic mixtures, but it offers little direct guidance to experimentalists, says Irene Chen, an origin-of-life researcher also at Harvard. The tricky part is figuring out exactly what the relevant chemicals to use are, she says. Martin's model is basically agnostic about that question. And coming up in a few moments is a story from TheOnion.com. Dolphins evolve opposable thumbs. And before I proceed any further, I'd just like to read an email I received from Jeff, who lives in Hendersonville, North Carolina, in the USA. I am a huge fan of all three of your podcasts, and I listen to them as often as they come out while I sit at my desk designing timber-framed homes, barns, covered bridges, etc., I just wanted to let you know for future reference that the story you read on the latest episode of Mysteries Abound about the Darwin image on a wall probably wasn't a factual story. The Onion is a parody magazine that is written in the style of a standard newspaper with a very dry humour. Although it could be argued that a lot of the stories we read in our actual US papers aren't real either. I just wanted to let you know in case you didn't already. Keep up the great work. Thank you for making my job a much more enjoyable experience. I did write back to Jeff pointing out that I did realise the story was a parody 
and I did try to read it in a manner that did send up the story a little bit. Um, I should have probably made it clearer. When I listened to the podcast after I produced it, I did realise it was sitting smack bang in the middle of a couple of stories that were quite factual in nature, and I probably should have pointed out that it was actually a parody. So anyway, thanks to Jeff for emailing me and giving me some feedback on the podcast. And now I'm going to do another one from theonion.com, and just to let you all know, this is a parody. It didn't actually occur. And... Why should we let the truth get in the way of a good story, anyway? Dolphins evolve opposable thumbs. Oh shit, says humanity. Honolulu. In an announcement with grave implications for the primacy of the species of man, Marine biologists at the Hawaii Oceanographic Institute reported Monday that dolphins, or family Delphinidae, have evolved opposable thumbs on their pectoral fins. I believe I speak for the entire human race when I say, holy fuck, said Oceanographic Institute director Dr. James Aoki, noting that the dolphin has a cranial capacity 40% greater than that of humans. That's it for us monkeys. Aoki strongly urged humans, especially those living near the sea, to learn to communicate using a system of clicks and whistles in a frequency range of 4 to 150 kilohertz. He also encouraged humans to start practicing their echolocation as soon as possible. Delphinologists have reported more than 7,000 cases of spontaneous opposable digit manifestation in the past two weeks alone, with thumbs observed on the bottlenose dolphin, the Atlantic humpback dolphin and even the rare Ganges river dolphin. It appears to be species-wide, said dolphin specialist Clifford Breeze of the Kualo Basin Marine Mammal Laboratory, speaking from the shark cage he welded shut around himself late Monday. And it may be even worse. We haven't exactly been eager to check for thumbs on other marine mammals belonging to the order of cetaceans, such as the killer whale. Oh Christ, we're really in the soup now. Thus far... All the opposable digits encountered appear to be fully functional, making it possible for dolphins, believed to be capable of faster and more complex cogitation than man, to manipulate objects, fashion tools and construct rudimentary pulley and lever systems. They really seem to be making up for lost time with this thumb thing, said Dr. Jim Cusack, a University of California, San Diego biologist who has studied the seasonal behaviour of dolphins for more than 30 years. Last Friday, a crude seaweed and shell abacus washed up on the beach near Hilo, Hawaii. The next day, a far more sophisticated abacus, fashioned from some unknown material and capable of calculating equations involving numbers of up to 16 digits, washed up on the same beach. The day after that, the beach was littered with thousands of what turned out to be coral silicate and kelp-based bio-microcircuitry. My God, Kuzak added, what are they doing down there? It is unknown what precipitated the dolphin's sudden development of opposable thumbs. Some dolphin behaviourists believe that the gentle marine mammal, pushed to the brink by humanity's reckless pollution and exploitation of the sea, tapped into some previously unmined mental powers to spontaneously generate a thumb-like appendage. 
However, given that 95% of the world's dolphin experts have committed suicide since learning of the development, the full story may never be known. You must believe, sleek ocean masters, that many of us Homo sapiens weep with shame and disgust over the degradation to which our species has subjected our all-mother, the Great World Sea, read the suicide note of Dr Richard Morse, a Brisbane, Australia, delphinologist and regular contributor to marine mammal science. If you are reading this, I estimate that it is the day we know as August 31, 2000. Please be decent and kind masters to our poor ape race. Oh God, I am so sorry about the tracking collars. Scientists once wondered whether dolphins, with their remarkably advanced social and language structures, are actually smarter than we are, said Aoki, ushering reporters out of the laboratory he claimed will either be a smoking hole or a zoo exhibit in the coming dolphin age. Well, we're not wondering anymore. And the following story comes from the gizmodo.com website. Hubble finds unidentified object in space. Scientists are puzzled. And it's written by Jesus Diaz. This is exactly why we send astronauts to risk their life to service Hubble. In a paper published last week in the Astrophysical Journal, scientists detailed the discovery of a new unidentified object in the middle of nowhere. I don't know about you, but when a research paper conclusion says, we suggest that the transient may be one of a new class, I get a chill of ooh anus down my spine. Especially when after a hundred days of observation, it disappeared from the sky with no explanation. Get your tinfoil hats out, because it gets even weirder. The object also appeared out of nowhere. It just wasn't there before. In fact, they don't even know where it is exactly located because it didn't behave like anything they know. Apparently, it can't be closer than 130 light-years, but it can't be as far as 11 billion light-years away. It's not in any known galaxy either, and they have ruled out a supernova too. It's something that they have never encountered before. In other words, they don't have a single clue about where or what the heck this thing is. The only thing the astronomers working on the Supernova Cosmology Project can tell is that it appeared all of a sudden in the direction of a cluster with the catchy name of CL1432.5 plus 3332.8, about 8.2 billion light-years away. Hubble caught a spark that continued to brighten during a 100-day period, peaking at the 21st magnitude only to fade away in the same period of time. Apparently, a scientist at the LHC declared that the object is similar to the flash that an Imperial Star Destroyer does when reaching warp 10. Either that, or some dust on the Hubble lenses, so someone tell NASA to get some Windex up there too. And today's final story has probably been done a million times, but I found this article fairly straightforward and quite interesting. The Mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. 
the Bermuda Triangle, sometimes also referred to as the Devil's Triangle, is a stretch of the Atlantic Ocean bordered by a line from Florida to the islands of Bermuda to Puerto Rico and then back to Florida. It is one of the biggest mysteries of our time that perhaps isn't really a mystery. The term Bermuda Triangle was first used in an article written by Vincent H. Gaddis for the Argosy magazine in 1964. In the article, Gaddis claimed that in this strange sea, a number of ships and planes had disappeared without explanation. Gaddis wasn't the first one to come to this conclusion either. As early as 1952, George X. Sands, in a report in Fate magazine, noted what seemed like an unusually large number of strange accidents in that region. In 1969, John Wallace Spencer wrote a book called Limbo of the Lost, specifically about the Triangle, and two years later, a feature documentary on the subject, The Devil's Triangle, was released. These, along with the bestseller, The Bermuda Triangle, published in 1974, permanently registered the legend of the Hoodoo Sea within popular culture. Why do ships and planes seem to go missing in the region? Some authors suggested it may be due to a strange magnetic anomaly that affects compass readings. In fact, they claim Columbus noted this when he sailed through the area in 1492. Others theorise that methane eruptions from the ocean floor may suddenly be turning the sea into a froth that can't support a ship's weight, so it sinks. Though there is no evidence of this type of thing happening in the Triangle for the past 15,000 years. Several books have gone as far as conjecturing that the disappearances are due to an intelligent, technologically advanced race living in space or under the sea. Kush's theory. In 1975, Larry Kush, a librarian at Arizona State University, reached a totally different conclusion. Kush decided to investigate the claims made by these articles and books. What he found he published in his own book entitled The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. Kush had carefully dug into records other writers had neglected. He found that many of the strange accidents were not so strange after all. Often a triangle writer had noted a ship or plane had disappeared in calm seas, when the records showed a raging storm had been in progress. Others said that ships had mysteriously vanished when their remains had actually been found and the cause of their sinking explained. In one case, a ship listed missing in the triangle actually had disappeared in the Pacific Ocean some 3,000 miles away. The author had confused the name of the Pacific port the ship had left with a city of the same name on the Atlantic coast. More significantly, a check of Lloyds of London's accident records by the editor of Fate in 1975 showed that the Triangle was no more dangerous than any other part of the ocean. US Coast Guard records confirm this, and since that time, no good arguments have ever been made to refute those statistics. So, many argue that the Bermuda Triangle mystery has disappeared, in the same way many of its supposed victims vanished. 
Even though the Bermuda Triangle isn't a true mystery, this region of the sea certainly has had its share of marine tragedy. This region is one of the heaviest travel areas of ocean in the world. Both small boats and commercial ships ply its waters, along with airliners, military aircraft and private planes, as they come to and from both the islands and more distant ports in Europe, South America and Africa. The weather in this region can make travelling hazardous too. The summer brings hurricanes while the warm waters of the Gulf Stream promote sudden storms. With this much activity in a relatively small region, it isn't surprising that a large number of accidents occur. Some of the ones commonly connected to the Triangle story are... The USS Cyclops Sinking One of the first stories connected to the Triangle legend and the most famous ship lost in the region was the USS Cyclops, which disappeared in 1918. The 542-foot-long Cyclops was launched in 1910 and served as a collier, a ship that carries coal, for the US Navy during World War I. The vessel was on its way from Bahia, Salvador, to Baltimore, but never arrived. After it had made an unscheduled stop at Barbados on March 3rd and 4th to take on additional supplies, it disappeared without trace. No wreckage from the ship was ever found, and no distress signal was received. The deaths of the 306 crew and passengers of the USS Cyclops remains the single largest loss of life in the US naval history, not directly involving combat. While the sinking of the Cyclops remains a mystery, the incident could have happened anywhere between Barbados and Baltimore, not necessarily in the Bermuda Triangle. Proponents of the Bermuda Triangle theory point to the lack of a distress call as evidence of a paranormal end for the vessel. But the truth is that wireless communications in 1918 were unreliable, and it would not have been unusual for a rapidly sinking vessel to not have a chance to send a successful distress call before going under. The SS Marine Sulphur Queen vanishes. The SS Marine Sulphur Queen, a tanker ship carrying molten sulphur, disappeared off the southern coast of Florida in 1963. The crew of 39 was all lost, and no wreckage from the tanker was ever found. While the disappearance of the ship is mentioned in several books about the Triangle, authors don't always include that the Coast Guard concluded that the vessel was in deplorable shape and should never have gone to sea at all. Fires erupted with regularity on the ship. Also, this class of vessel was known to have a weak back, which means the keel would split when weakened by corrosion, causing the ship to break in two. The ship's structure had further been compromised by a conversion from its original mission as an oil tanker to carrying molten sulphur. The conversion had left the ship with an extremely high centre of gravity, increasing the chance that it would capsize. The SS Marine Sulphur Queen was, all in all, a disaster waiting to happen, and it seems unfair to blame its demise on the Bermuda Triangle. The Disappearance of NC-16002 
NC-16002 was a DC-3 passenger plane that vanished on the night of December 28, 1948, during a flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico, to Miami in Florida. The weather was fine with high visibility, and the flight was, according to the pilot, within 50 miles of Miami when it disappeared with its three crew members and 29 passengers. Though no probable cause for the loss was determined by the official investigation, it is known that the plane's batteries were not fully charged on takeoff, and this may have interfered with communications during the flight. A message from Miami to the plane that the direction of the wind had changed may not have been received by the pilot, causing him to fly up to 50 miles off course. The Fate of Flight 19 the tail of Flight 19 started on December 5, 1945. Five Avenger torpedo bombers lifted into the air from the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, Florida at 2.10 in the afternoon. It was a routine practice mission and the flight was composed of all students except for the commander, a Lieutenant Charles Taylor. The mission called for Taylor and his group of 13 men to fly due east 56 miles to Hens and Chicken Shoals to conduct practice bombing runs. When they had completed that objective, the flight plan called for them to fly an additional 67 miles east and then turn north for 73 miles and finally straight back to base, a distance of 120 miles. This course would take them on a triangular path over the sea. About an hour and a half after the flight had left, Lieutenant Robert Cox at the base picked up a radio transmission from Taylor. Taylor indicated that his compasses were not working, but he believed himself to be somewhere over the Florida Keys. Cox urged him to fly northwards toward Miami if Taylor was sure the flight was over the Keys. Planes today have a number of ways that they can check their current position, including listening to a set of global positioning satellites in orbit around the Earth. It is almost impossible for a pilot to get lost if he has the right equipment and uses it properly. In 1945, though, planes flying over the water had to depend on knowing their starting point, how long and fast they had flown, and in what direction. If a pilot made a mistake with any of these figures, he was lost. Over the ocean, there were no landmarks to set him right. Apparently, Taylor had become confused at some point in the flight. He was an experienced pilot, but he hadn't spent a lot of time flying east towards the Bahamas, which was where he was going on that day. For some reason, Taylor apparently thought the flight had started out in the wrong direction and had headed south towards the Keys, instead of east. This thought was to colour his decisions throughout the rest of the flight, with deadly results. The more Taylor took his flight north to try to get out of the Keys, the further out to sea the Avengers actually travelled. As time went on, snatches of transmissions were picked up on the mainland, indicating the other Flight 19 pilots were trying to get Taylor to change course. If we would just fly west, one student told another, we could get home. He was right. By 4.45pm, it was obvious to the people on the ground that Taylor was hopelessly lost. He was urged to turn control of the flight over to one of his students, but apparently he didn't. As it grew dark, communications deteriorated. From the few words that did get through, 
it was apparent that Taylor was still flying north and east, the wrong direction. At 5.50pm, the Comgulf Sea Frontier Evaluation Centre managed to get a fix on Flight 19's weakening signals. It was apparently east of New Smyrna Beach, Florida. By then, communications were so poor that this information could not be passed to the lost pilots. At 6.20, a Dumbo flying boat was dispatched to try and find Flight 19 and guide it back. Within the hour, two more planes, Martin Mariners, joined the search. Hope was rapidly fading for Flight 19 by then. The weather was getting rough and the Avengers were very low on fuel. Two Martin Mariners were supposed to rendezvous at the search zone. The second one, designated Training 49, never showed up joining the five Avengers as missing. The last transmission from Flight 19 was heard at 7.04pm. Planes searched the area through the night and the next day. There was no sign of the Avengers. Nor did the authorities really expect to find much. The Avengers, crashing when their fuel was exhausted, would have been sent to the bottom in seconds by the 50-foot waves of the storm. As one of Taylor's colleagues noted, They didn't call those planes iron birds for nothing. They weighed 14,000 pounds empty. So when they ditched, they went down pretty fast. What happened to the missing Martin Mariner? Well, the crew of the SS Gaines Mill observed an explosion over the water shortly after the Mariner had taken off. They headed toward the site, and there they saw what looked like oil and airplane debris floating on the surface. None of it was recovered because of the bad weather, but there seems little doubt this was the remains of the mariner. The plane had a reputation as being a flying bomb, which would burst into flames from even a single small spark. Speculation is that one of the 22 men on board, unaware that the unpressurised cabin contained gas fumes, lit a cigarette, causing the explosion. So, how did this tragedy turn into a Bermuda Triangle mystery? The Navy's original investigation concluded the accident had been caused by Taylor's navigational confusion. According to those that knew him, he was a good pilot, but often navigated flying by the seat of his pants, and had gotten lost in the past. Taylor's mother refused to accept that, and finally got the Navy to change the report to read that the disaster was for cause or reasons unknown. This may have spared the woman's feeling, but blurred the actual facts. The saga of Flight 19 is probably the most repeated story about the Bermuda Triangle. Vincent Gaddis put the tale into the same Argosy magazine article when he coined the term Bermuda Triangle in 1964, and the two have been connected ever since. The planes and their pilots even found their way into the science fiction classic film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Where is Flight 19 now? Well, in 1991, five Avengers were found in 750 feet of water off the coast of Florida by the salvage ship Deep Sea. Examination of the plane's ID numbers, however, showed they were not from Flight 19. As many as 139 Avengers were thought to have gone into the water off the coast of Florida during the war. It seems the final resting place of the Lost Squadron and their crews is still a real Bermuda Triangle mystery.
Well, that concludes episode 12 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I did do this one in two parts, one before I went away on holidays and one after I came back from holidays. So it may sound a little bit different in the middle. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to meeting everyone again in episode 13. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, visit my other ones called Origins, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, and Bizarre Bizarre, both of which can be found on iTunes and other good podcasting sites. And if you do get a chance, it would be great if you could review the podcast on iTunes or Podcast Alley or wherever you found the feed, as it does help to raise the profile of the podcast and increase the number of downloads, making it worth my while to keep the podcast going. At the moment, we're getting around 150 to 200 each week, so that's not too bad. Anyway, it's bye for now.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.